welcome to the Defender Podcast, a resource to help mobilize and equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, and I'm your host, Herbie Newell. It's Wednesday, March 3rd, 2021. I'm Herbie Newell, and I'm coming to you from Birmingham, Alabama. Well, today we start a very special day in the life of the Defender podcast. We are officially joining the Charisma Network. For those of you who've been listening to the Defender podcast now for many years, this change really shouldn't affect you much at all, but we would like to welcome all of our new listeners from the Charisma Network, and this will allow more people to hear the Defender podcast, to get the interviews that we uh, have, as well as to connect to the body of Christ in order to defend life. And so for the month of March, to welcome our new listeners from the Charisma Network, but also for all of our faithful listeners to go back and hear some of the best interviews and some of the best moments on the Defender Podcast, we want to do a a revisit during March to look back and see those great interviews, those great opportunities, some of the most popular podcasts that we've had over the last three and a half years on the Defender Podcast. And so today, we want to present you with an interview that I was able to have with John Anguachequa. And John is a pastor in Atlanta, Georgia. He and his sweet wife have both fostered as well as adopted. And John is an African-American man in a multi-ethnic church. And so everything that he says is so relevant to where we are right now as a country and as a culture, both with race, but also with adoption and orphan care. And so I'm grateful for you get to hear from this brother. And for those of you who may have heard, John, this interview was recorded uh, in October 12th and 13th of 2017 and released on the Defender podcast. And we are so grateful for our new listeners, as well as for our new friends from the Charisma Network to be able to hear this interview with John Onguachequa from October 12th and 13th of 2017. But before we hear that, I want to remind you of a resource we have called Image Bears. Image Bears is a book that our team put out, and it's all about shifting from pro-birth to pro-life. You see, Image Bears dives into what it means to be pro-life, not just pro-birth, and it addresses topics on race, poverty, international orphan care, the family unit, and so much more. It includes prayer guides, tips to care for the fatherless in your community and around the world, and thought-provoking questions in each chapter's discussion guide. To purchase your copy, visit lifelinechild.org backslash image bears. Again, that's lifelinechild.org backslash image bears. Or see the show notes for more details, or you could always go to Amazon.com. We are grateful that John Anguachequa uh, became a part of the Defender podcast back in 2017. And we're grateful that you get to hear this great interview. And I want to tell you one more exciting thing before we hear from John. Starting in April, we are going to actually have a, a relatively new format on the Defender podcast. We'll still use interviews and discussion formats with the same topics, but we're actually bringing on a co-host. So Dr. Rick Morton, the Vice President of Engagement here at Lifeline, will be joining me for the Defender podcast. And so you you will get to hear not just Dr. Rick on those best of series or standing in for me every once in a while, but he will become a regular fixture of the Defender podcast. And so we look forward and hope you will join us not just here in the month of March, but also in April when we relaunch the Defender podcast with Dr. Rick and Herbie Newell.
Well, we are privileged today to have uh, a guy and a pastor that I have really admired from afar. Uh, this is our first day to get to meet each other. And we're not even face to face. We're over a computer screen. Uh, but just such a, an honor to have uh, Pastor John Owechequa here with us today on the Defender Podcast. And, and he and his wife have planted a church recently, Cornerstone Church, and they worship in the West End of, of Atlanta. Uh, John is a, is a graduate of Baylor University, and he and his wife just over the years have, have really sought out to care for the fatherless and to, to care for the orphan and the widow. And six months ago, uh, he and Chandra were able to adopt uh, a precious little baby girl. And so, John, thank you so much for joining us on the Defender Podcast. And can you just tell us a little bit about your and, and, and Chandra's journey towards adoption and even just the beautiful culmination several months ago of bringing your daughter home? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, first of all, man, honored to be a part of this show. Thanks for the invite. Um, yeah, I mean, with me and Chandra, we... Uh, uh, we got married in 2007, the fall of 07. So we're getting ready to come up on our 10 year. Um, so, man, really, you know, we're 23 years old and married. Um, shortly after marriage, yeah, I'm talking like three months, we were ready to, you know, have kids and start to add to our family. Um, and uh, it just turned out that our plans weren't God's plans. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, we tried and, you know, didn't have any luck. And we were told by all the folks, like, nah, it's fine. You know, everybody goes through this. And, um, so, uh, man, the hard thing was like, you know, 23 years old, you know, I'm a pastor and we have all of our friends that are getting married, um, uh, here in the same time frame. And over the course of the next uh, four years, I think, maybe four years, uh, we probably have, and this is not hyperbole, uh, probably 15 conversations with our friends who, you know, we get the phone call from them and it's like, yo, we're pregnant. (sighs) What are we going to do? We didn't we weren't trying to and that. So it's like, like 15, like where we're constantly saying our kids are a blessing, kids are a blessing. I'm trying our best to encourage them, you know, all the while, you know, we have family that, you know, that's not married. uh, uh, And it just seems like everybody's having babies, like back to back to back. And it seems like some people are starting to have kids every like six weeks. And in our mind, we're like, that's not even possible. How do you have all of these kids? And, um, but this whole time, you know, we're trying, we're trying, we're trying, you know, we go to doctors and they're all like, it, it's just unexplained infertility. And so from this standpoint, it's like, ah, oh, there's nothing that's wrong. Uh, sometimes this just takes place. And so that was, discouraging because you almost want to know like, yo, like tell me what the problem is so so that we can fix it. And with them, it's like, like, there is no problem. There's no way to fix it. Um, So, you know, we started in 07 and, um, you know, from the time we got married, we knew that we wanted to adopt and we just thought, oh, all right, we'll have natural kids first and then we'll adopt at the end. Well, you, you know, after about, 
you know, four and a half years of being married, it's like, I, um, hey, it seems like that the Lord wants us to adopt. So we started in January of 2012 trying to adopt, and our heart was, all right, we want to adopt a kid through the foster care system because everybody wants babies and young kids, and nobody wants the kids that are, you know, like, like three years old to eight years old, and nobody wants a sibling group. And we were told, hey, if you're trying to adopt a kid through the foster care system, uh, if you say that you don't care about age or race or sibling groups, then things will move really, really quick. And so we said, hey, age, race, it really doesn't matter. We'll take up to three kids at one time, and they can be up to eight years old. And it doesn't matter, like, yeah, you know, physical difficulties, social things and all that. And we thought that it would move quick. And we found ourselves um, for four and a half years uh, in the process trying to adopt through the state of Georgia with nothing. So, I mean, we threw off every restraint that they told us to, and we had four and a half years of just you know, balls getting dropped through the state, you know, uh, a group that we were with that was state-funded, lost funds, and then the back and forth of trying to um, make it work. And so, man, um, so it was five and a half years total of us just being caught in the system. And managers got to a place where we're like, well, we've come to grips with the fact that we won't have any natural kids of our own. It seems like that's what's in the deck for us. But then we sort of asked, man, like we're trying to adopt. It seemed like, it seems like God really doesn't want us to have any kids period. And, um, so we were on vacation a little uh, more than a year ago and just prayed and said, hey, we're, we're going to pick things back up. Um, uh, my brother died April of 2015. Uh, I sank into a depression and um, we put the adoption stuff on hold. And then 2016, we're on vacation. We decided to pick it back up. and We come back home and um, yeah, my wife has a meeting with a friend um, and the friend was like, hey, we really have a heart for y'all to adopt. Like y'all have just been on our heart and um, we have a heart for, um, man, African-American families that want to adopt and we just want to do our part to help. And so they're like, hey, there's an agency that we work with or that we've gone through, that we love them. Um, I know that y'all have gone through the state, but here, if y'all would think about an infant adoption, get a chance to go through that. Think about it. If it seems good to y'all, we'll foot the bill. So we just kind of stepped back and was blown away. And uh, so we went to the classes last fall. Um, and then April of this year, you know, it was a Saturday morning. My wife uh, gets a call from our caseworker and our caseworker's like, hey, there's a is a mom that, you know, had a daughter and mm. the baby was born premature and she knows that she can't take care of her. Uh, but one thing that they do know is they want, there's two things that they want. They want an African-American family that loves the Lord. And uh, would you all be willing to show your book? This was 
you know, a Saturday. And we're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> Monday morning at noon, we get the call saying, when do you want to go and meet your daughter? And so that, you know, at that point, it was just surreal. Um, and it, yeah, you know, my wife comes home, you know, tears, you know, we're crying, it's not everywhere. Um, we, we get in the car and drive down to see her and spend the next three weeks with her while she's in the NICU. Um, you know, she was born three and a half pounds. Um, she comes home three weeks later at four pounds. And mm. um, yeah, that was, you know, six months ago. And now she is uh, beautiful. Uh, she's sleep right now, <laughs> but she's yeah, big, growing. Um, and she's just, yeah, yeah been a godsend um, to us. So yeah, that's our story. I mean, yeah, nine and a half years of praying and waiting and we've seen, you know, what Charles Spurgeon said to be true, that these like unanswered prayers and prayers that have these prolonged answers are like ripened fruit. And we just feel like, yeah, we've been praying for years and years and years. And uh, God just kind of kept, kept her on the vine for us. Uh, and now that we have her, I mean, she's, yeah, God is good. Creation testifies to his goodness, but uh, Ava has testified to God's goodness in a unique way for us. So, yeah, that's our story. Amen. Wow, what a what an encouragement to to know that even when even when things don't go as quickly as we hope, that as you said, God is still good through the wait, through the times, and He perfectly knew that that Ava needed you and Chandra to be her mom and her dad, and yes. that wait prepared you for that and. And I know that's really kind of the story of your life, right? A lot of, a lot of waiting in preparation for something that God would call you to. And you were at Blueprint Church in Atlanta for a long time. And several years ago, the Lord called you out to plant a new church yeah. and to, to plant Cornerstone Church in the West End of Atlanta. Yeah. And I know that has been just a journey. And I think you said for Christianity Today some time ago that you don't go in to plant a church, you go in to a place to plant the gospel. And, and I know that's hard and challenging. And especially in this day and age, even in today's time, having a multicultural church and a multi-ethnic congregation can be challenging. So what, I guess, two-part question, as a, as a pastor of a racially diverse church, how have you seen that diversity first be used as an avenue for the gospel? And then what are some real challenges of a multi-ethnic congregation? And how can we be praying for you in that? Yeah, yeah, uh, man, just, yeah, one of the beautiful things is just one of the clearest, uh, uh, it's one of the clearest apologetics to the truth of the gospel that we've seen here in the world. I mean, um, I went to Israel last fall and I'm not much of a sightseer. So like, you know, the temples, the statues, the like mount, the sea of Galilee, like those things really didn't do it for me. Uh, I feel like I've seen them all on Google already. <laughs> but the thing that did it for me was like, man, as we go to like uh, the place that they suspect to be, you know, the tomb site, uh, the garden where he prayed, um, just seeing like, like, man, like, you know, Asian people and Brazilian and Chinese and Korean and African and white and Middle Eastern and 
like you name it, like you just see every ethnicity of people there and you just kind of step back and say, man, like this is one thing that makes Christianity unique from every other religion. Like if you talk about what a Hindu looks like, there's a picture that comes in your mind. You talk about uh, what a Buddhist looks like, uh, you know, what a Muslim looks like. There's a, there's an ethnic picture that comes into your mind. But when you talk about what a Christian looks like, uh, there is none of that. Like Christianity is not tribal. Like it is diverse. And so I just sat back and you just sit back and think like if there really was a God that didn't favor a group of people over anybody else and wanted to create a family where he showed that he loved all his creation the same, uh, it, it would have to be the God of Christianity. And mm-hmm. so I think um, that yeah, what's really dope is to be in the context that we're in that um, is a predominantly black side of town. But to have a diverse church where on Sundays, it, like folks come in and people are used to seeing, you know, a white church or a black church. But to just walk in and to see like, man, man there's, there's black and white folks here and good representation. Um, it's just a clear picture that there's something yeah, greater than just our cultural preferences and biases that unite us. So the beauty is that, man, it creates a great apologetic. It creates intrigue in the side of folks' mind because they come in and they're like, all right, what's really going on here that uh, these people all gather together and they seem to genuinely like one another? Um, So that's been where it's been great. Um, Here's where it's been hard. Um, You know, it's been hard on a few fronts, uh, especially in the political cycle that uh, we've just been through and the world we're starting to live in right now. Uh, one of the things that we found is that, like, um, when you do have a church that's like that, uh, a diverse church, um, uh, while it is a seedbed that provides a great apologetic for the gospel, it's also like a, a seedbed where a lot of um, suspicion can grow up. Um, mm. And uh, it's funny, like, uh, communication is tough. There's a landmine, right? Like, you can't throw out phrases or words or sentences that are carelessly thought through and and then at the end be like, well, y'all know what I'm saying. You know what I was trying to get at because every... Like, cause yeah, cause you don't have just like the whole church is not made up of people that share the same vantage point or background. So it just leads to like lots of misunderstanding, lots of clarity, lots of, I know that you think that I said that, but let me help you. Uh, yeah. Like, let me help you un- understand what I mean or um, not feeling like, we have to clarify or play both sides whenever we call out an evil. Um, that's a big challenge because I think, yeah, you know, especially in the, the life of the church with people that have more of a conservative theological background, um, it's easy to call out the prosperity gospel and prosperity theology and other things that may find a prevalence um, amongst the minority group and feel justified in that. Um, 
But then it's like when we do spend time and call out or pray for um, a white nationalism that exists in our country that um, underhandedly tries to co-opt itself with Christianity, uh, people can get offended and feel like, well, you, you called out the white folks, but you didn't talk about the other people on this side. And it's like, well, that's not, yeah, if, if, if you put the burden on calling out every evil that exists um, each time you call it out, you're just going to, it's going to be a headache and conversation. And so uh, navigating through like, like, like all of those landmines and being a church that is predominantly African American and having a, a lot of people that are a part of our church uh, both ways, you know, we got folks in our church that are used to being the minority in the church. And now for the first time, they're the majority in the church and trying to help them see all, uh, all right. Like now's not the time to do what you feel like was done to you when you were the minority. Mm -hmm. Um, Or we have folks that are used to being the majority in the church and now they find themselves as the minority in the church. And what comes up is like, yeah, everybody wants diversity until you're the minority. And then you're like, man, there's parts of this that like sucks. Like I hate being here and not <laughs> getting the jokes. I hate being here and feeling like I'm left out and not thought through. And so it's like really trying to help everybody yeah, just kind of see life through the other person's perspective and reminding us of whether we're the minority or the majority in a context. We do have gospel obligations to treat our brothers and sisters with love. And yeah, so the main thing is just there's landmines everywhere. There, it is, there is not a conversation that doesn't have landmines. Mm. Well, I, I know you touched on this a little bit and, and certainly Right now, today, we see, you know, some tense things uh, with white supremacists marching on Charlottesville and, you know, just debates where even our president is calling out those in the NFL who are kneeling during the national anthem. But just as a pastor from a gospel's perspective, what do you see in the church is the most prevalent issue of racial reconciliation? And, And what are some, maybe some pastoral words to both uh, specifically our, our white brothers and sisters, but to both our white brothers and sisters and our black brothers and sisters about how we can reconcile and show that diversity of the body of Christ that you were talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's hard, especially when we use words like most. Like, it's, yeah, I mean, yeah, we could have an entire conversation about that, but um, it, here's one that I think that serves as a, um, you know, a bottleneck or a stopper that keeps us from really pursuing uh, all of the rest. And I would say um, a, a thing that exists on both sides. I, I think what you have is um, it's, uh, sometimes with our white brothers and sisters, there becomes um, a failure to simply acknowledge wrongs that are done mm. and listen, right? So we get a lot of folks that um, come in and want to talk about racial rec- reconciliation. Um, and the first thing that they think to do is to set an agenda of what needs to be done and to command and control the meetings and to talk and to work through things. And let's get this thing 
it done on a time frame where I do think that, yeah, part, just a huge part of reconciliation, if it is going to uh, take place, it's going to be the people that um, have, yeah, you know, you don't want to use the word power, power and or privilege, just taking some time and saying, I'm going to sit back and listen. Um, and where I initially disagree with conclusions that are being drawn, um, I'm not going to critique those conclusions until I've really been sure that I've comprehended what's all being said. And so I feel like, um, yeah, you know, what's, what's tough is that like uh, in conversations like these, especially around racial reconciliation, one of the predominant things that I've seen with my white brothers and sisters is they'll sit down, they'll listen and they'll hear, uh, but it's hearing always with an ear towards or an eye towards, all right, what do I need to do? What do I need to do right now to change, to alleviate the burdens or uh, alleviate the guilt that I feel on the inside? And so I, I just feel like when, yeah, when you want to move to action that quickly, I think sometimes it just, uh, uh, you're content with very surface understanding of the issues that have gone on, which leads to a very surface solution that doesn't do anything really. And so I would just say, hey, just take time. Let's sit back, like really learn. Um, you know, one of the things that I love about, you know, a guy like Tim Keller, and it's not just his stuff on race, man, but you look at like anything that he does. Um, and it seems like whenever he's presenting an opponent's view in his books and uh, lectures that he gives, like he's just got this knack of being able to understand what his opponents say in a way where he can summarize it better than they would. And they themselves would say, Oh yeah, man, that's a pretty good. Yeah. That's exactly what I think. Um, and I feel like in a lot of these conversations, uh, I think sometimes uh, my white brothers and sisters who are well-intentioned and want to do good um, are just eager and hasty when it comes to solutions. And so I think that a little patience uh, would do a lot of good. Um, yeah. And that's, and a, so I think from our side, from the side of, yeah, Oh no, no, you can go. I was just saying, that's a good word. I, I'd love to hear what you're about to say, but I think that's a good word too, because we didn't yeah, get I'm here sorry. overnight yeah, and we're not going to, we're not going to fix it overnight right. either. Yeah. No, 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 I agree. Um, and that's why I think from our side, I think uh, one, of the, one of the frustrations that I've seen, um, yeah, you know, just from our side, I think from the minority side is at, at times is that um, there can be such like, such a like visceral, like anger and frustration as there should be with the way that our world is, uh, come into place and there's an eagerness to see change uh, that there's really a lack of patience for what it'll really take to bring real substantive change. And I think uh, yeah, when you're constantly pressing people to do, do, do right now, do, do, do right now, or if you don't want to do then don't come and talk to me. Um, and it makes it really hard for uh, people 
that are slow processes of people that have just fallen so far behind and have so much to learn, it makes them really, it makes it really hard for them to um, take the necessary time that's needed in order to like learn, to make the necessary investment. Um, and so that's why I just think that, um, yeah, that there does need to be a patience on our side. And I think a patience that doesn't come naturally, a patience that's a fruit of the spirit uh, where we can, um, uh, yeah, where, where we can call for change and change that needs to be done, but we can patiently encourage people towards faithfulness. Uh, what I see a lot of, especially in social media, um, has been shaming people towards faithfulness. And as a pastor, I've just learned that um, that never works. Nobody is discouraged or shamed towards faithfulness. Um, we're encouraged towards those ends. And, and this is where I just think that, um, yeah, that it's, it's going to take Christians uh, that really have a posture of their savior who was, you know, as shrewd as a serpent, but as gentle as a dove to mm. bring about this change. And so um, it, everybody with the badge Christian um, isn't the best for this work. I, I think it's going to take those that uh, really exemplify uh, the tenacity and the tenderness of our savior. Um, yeah. The, reconciliation can't take place without both of those. Amen. Yeah. Well, John, just to, to kind of close this out, obviously you and, and Chandra have gone on this journey of adoption, obviously a lot longer than you had hoped or expected, but now you lead a church that you are also encouraging to have a heart for the orphan and the widow and the vulnerable. Uh, just talk about as a pastor, how are, what are some ways that you've led your church to have a heart for the fatherless? Yeah. Um, so I wish that, yeah, I mean, I, I, I wish that I had a more, um, yeah, substantive answer to this question and just, um, so, you know, one of the, yeah, the only thing that I feel like we've really let out in for better or worse is, um, we've just tried to be as transparent um, as we could with our story, uh, both the highs and the lows. And so, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, I'd say that my church has done more for me than I've done for my church and trying to lead them more. Like, we just have a church that's yeah, prayed for us, they've been with us, they've cried uh, for us. And then when we uh, uh, adopted our daughter, um, they've cried like with us and they've seen the joy that's uh, been on our face and in our eyes and they've seen the journey that God has brought us on. And I feel like, man, if there's anything that's transferred in the life of our church or has helped to instill this burden for the fatherless in them, it's, yeah, it's just the fact that they've seen God's faithfulness, God's unbroken faithfulness um, uh, against uh, just our journey and our ups and downs and 
our prayer is that our journey lived out openly in front of our church would at least be the first um, step. And there's more concrete things that we hope to do in the future. But yeah, I mean, I wish that there was more, but yeah, right now, I mean, I don't want to, um, yeah, you know, I don't want to be somebody that makes more of himself, more of his work than has actually been done. So yeah, that's, that's, that's one thing that y'all can be praying uh, for us within our church. You know, we really do want our church to be uh, just that. Hmm. Well, hey, man, that was great. Well, I, I appreciate uh, just your humility and transparency in so many of those questions and just confident that those words will truly disciple many and reach many's heart, many people's hearts. So thank you for your openness and your willingness to, to talk. Thank you, brother. Man, I'm grateful. Thanks for listening to the Defender Podcast. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Podcast to make it easier for more people to find. For more information how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, visit us at lifelinechild.org. If you want to connect with me, please visit herbienewell.com. Follow us at Lifeline on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. Beloved, will you allow God to use the gospel through you to impact the life of a child? Please contact us because we are here to defend the fatherless. We'll see you again next week for the Defender Podcast.